Uh, Father, we uh, come before you desiring to sit at your feet as I often pray. Lord, may we learn from you. And your ways are good. May we have understanding as we read your commandments which have been set forth. Help us to understand their true purpose. And Lord, as you give us wisdom in this area, may we exemplify it through action. Help us all, Lord, for we are weak. But through your spirit, all things are possible according to your will. So accomplish that, we pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Exodus chapter 23, just as by way of review, the purpose of the law, it was given for the safety of the people. It enabled a society to exist, setting up rules and regulations which were to be followed and how recompense or how payback was to be dished back out to those people who have been wronged if they decided to sue somebody. The Lord even has a say in that. But the law was difficult. The Ten Commandments and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, everything that was in there that the Israelites were supposed to accomplish. And it was more like the Israelites were small children and the Lord was a teacher a almost like a taskmaster I've explained this before it's one who has been put in charge of a young man inside of the house to make sure he meets all of his appointments that he gets through all of his study time and usually it was uh, more of a stern individual but one who developed a love for uh, the children that he oversaw the, the young boys that he oversaw but it was tough he would be the one in charge of discipline he would bring out the switch he would make sure that if the child was disobedient he was punished for it and that's what the law was like then we moved on to what is known as grace for us we are under the dispensation of grace and the law was meant to point us to Christ to make sure that when we saw all these rules and regulations we would see how difficult it is to follow them and how you must constantly have the sacrifice and bring it to the Lord and and it was a costly sacrifice and it was meant to point us to Jesus Christ the ultimate sacrifice where all the ceremonial sacrifices could be done away with because he was the ultimate sacrifice and this was also given so that we might reel in the nature that we have the nature that we were born with the carnal nature because given full vent given full reign, it would run roughshod over anybody's life and ruin the lives of people around us. And so it's meant to be a bit in our mouths. It was meant to be, or especially for the Israelites, it was meant to be a tether or a leash to keep the individual in line, specifically the Israelites. Now, we are not bound by the law like the Jews uh, were bound by the law. We are slaves to Christ. We are a bondservant to Christ. We are no longer a bondservant to sin, a slave to sin, I should say. And so it is our goal to make sure we operate under grace. And if we follow the two greatest commandments that Jesus gave, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, we will fulfill all of the law. All you have to do is ask yourself, does it fulfill the first law to love God, whatever you want to do, whatever decision you want to make? And does it fulfill the second law, loving your neighbor as yourself? If it does that, 
then we are a law unto ourselves, and the Holy Spirit is able to guide us through that. Now, there's one Rabbi Shammai. Uh, he said that Moses gave 613 laws with 365 prohibitions and 248 positive commandments. Now, if you could memorize all of those commandments, all those prohibitions, all of those positive commands, then you were doing well. And that's what the Pharisees strove to do. That's what the uh, lawyers, the scribes, that, that was their purpose in life, was to memorize all those and be able at a moment's notice to recite what they are and dictate how they are to be followed. But all of those laws, like I said, it boils down into the two laws of loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself. But yet we go back to the Israelites. We have seen the Ten Commandments been given to us. We have seen how theft is to be dealt with, how the person is to be paid back if they have been harmed by that, how an intruder, if they come into your house, they can, be, um, they can have lethal force used against them to stop them. And we see that God sets this up to be fair and to be just. If there's one thing that God is, it is fair and it is just. No one will be able to stand before him on the day we face a judgment, whether the Bema seat that the believers will face or the great white throne judgment. No one will be able to stand before him and say, you are being unfair. I believe all of us who are there will say, he has acted justly. He has acted completely fair. And those people that we have in a mind, our question in our minds, are they saved or are they not? God is going to deal with them fairly. He will not be capricious in his actions. He will not just on a whim decide to change how he acts. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we pick it up in Exodus chapter 23 in verse 1. And there are several things that we are to stand for as believers. And the Jews back then, they were also to stand up either against something or stand up either for something. And we are supposed to do the same thing today. If we see something that is wrong, we're to stand up and say, this is wrong. If we see somebody making mayhem inside of the society, we can stand up and say, that man or that woman is wicked. They need to change. And that's a heavy word in our society today if you call somebody wicked. Somebody else might say, don't judge me, man. I think we talked about that uh, before on Wednesdays. But this idea of judging, we are allowed to judge. The spiritual man makes judgments about many things. And so we are supposed to judge right and wrong, and we are supposed to stand up and declare it as such. If we don't do that, society will just continue to slouch in the name of the book by Mr. Bennett, Slouching Towards Gomorrah. I think it was Bill Bennett that wrote that book. And so we are just on this slide because we are not speaking up. And even in our society today, when people want to speak up on the other side of what is right and good and holy and just, they are saying, foul, you should not open up your mouth. You should not call this wrong for after all, whatever anybody wants to do, and that's okay for them as long as it doesn't harm anybody else. And God says, no, that is not the case. There is right and wrong, and we should stand up either for something or stand up against something. And number one that I'm going to give you, I think there are 11 points that I have here, 10 or 11. 
In Exodus chapter 23, verse 1, it says, Do not spread false reports. Do not help a wicked man by being a malicious witness. In other words, stand against wicked men. That's the first point we want to make here. If somebody was to spread false reports, if they were to falsify a testimony, there was a penalty for that that was set up in Leviticus chapter 6 in the beginning about verses 1 through 4 or 1 through 5, I think it is. A sacrifice of a lamb was required. Uh, You had to appear before God if you filed a false report or gave a false testimony. And you were to give this lamb to God. You were to bring it to the priest, but it was for God. And then there was a penalty of 20% if anybody was ever harmed by the lie that you told. So whatever monetary damage they may have incurred because a lie was told, the, the person who perpetrated that lie had to pay 20% on top of whatever it was that they lost. Proverbs 19.5 says... A false witness will not go unpunished, and he who pours out lies will not go free. And Proverbs twenty-one twenty-eight says, A false witness will perish, but whoever listens to him will be destroyed forever. So God detests a false witness. Secondly, we're to stand against a wicked group. You know, the mob mentality, you see a mob start rioting or something. We're to stand against, not put yourself in harm's way where they're going to kill you or maim you. But it says in verse 2, Do not follow the crowd in wrongdoing. When you give testimony in a lawsuit, do not pervert justice by siding with the crowd. And you know that there's this crowd mentality, the mob mentality. They've done studies on this where all it takes is a few instigators, a few well-paid instigators put inside of a crowd can start a riot. And it's always because of just a few, and then you have the willing sheeple that go along with it. They just say, hey, I'm going to do whatever's going on. Yeah, this is a side we need to be on. And we are sheeple. I mean, we, the things that we should know, and you see those man-on-the-street interviews uh, that are on television, and it's just incredible what we are doing with our educational systems today where the kids don't know, the young people, the millennials, they don't know anything about history, what's right and wrong, and how to judge it critically. And that's what we're to give our lives to as believers. We're supposed to know right and wrong. And we're supposed to be able to discern when something is just going in the wrong direction. But we are, as believers, we are to stand against a wicked group just like the Israelites were to do. Thirdly, We're to stand for justice. In verse 3, it says, And do not show favoritism to a poor man in his lawsuit. Now, I understand that we want to protect the poor. After traveling in several places around the world, most people in this country are not poor because they have to be. Uh, They are poor because they choose to be. They end up... I know I'm going to get some flack for this. What happens is... What has happened is the government has raised the taxes so that they can start taking care of people, which takes that burden of care out of the church. If the people in the church have less to give, there's fewer people that can be helped. And you narrow down that by also reducing the amount of deduction that you can take on your IRS form for giving to such a ministry like that, whether it's a secular ministry or a church ministry, they want to, those in the government, they want to have that power ceded 
to itself and taken away from the private sector so that they might control what's going on and help those individuals. And so the poor that we have in this country, I mean, if somebody is truly poor, even if you're an alien and you come in here, I've heard stories of people getting $2,500 a month and they have flat screen TVs and they, they have an air conditioner and sometimes they have one or two cars. That is the majority, and they've done studies on this, that's the majority of the poor in this country. Now, there are people definitely that have fallen on hard times and they have nowhere to turn. And those people, if we find out who they are, we're supposed to help them. But, you know, in that, uh, somebody likes to speculate, well, Scripture says God helps those who help themselves. That is not a Scripture. It's not in there. But it does kind of teach that. It says the person who will not work will not eat. And so the person who says, nah, I'm going to let the government take care of it. How many times have you heard somebody say, it's better for me to remain on unemployment than to go get a job because I get more on unemployment than I would get a job. That's a horrible, horrible system to have set up. And so the government wants to do that. And so our poor have been elevated. Most of them have stuff. And usually when you see the poor and they come in with a card, uh, EBT card, it used to be food stamps, they're smoking cigarettes. And it used to, when I grew up, it was, if you're that poor where you need assistance, you better stop smoking cigarettes. You better stop spending that on other things. And now there's a market on those EBT cards. They can sell them for half price, get the cash, and go buy drugs with them. And they haven't been able to stop that. I mean, we are messed up as a country, and we need to turn that around. If we hold each other responsible, we can do this. We can turn the country around. But it's this idea, we don't want to say anything. You know, they're just going to do what they want. I don't want to cause any trouble. And it's tough to stand up and say, this is wrong because somebody might oppose you. Somebody might get angry. On the other side, the progressive side, and I call that the other side because I don't think that there's really anything good in the progressive side, both theologically speaking and politically speaking. There are norms of morality that I would adamantly disagree with on that side. And so we need to be ones who stand up and say, no, this is wrong. This is harmful to our society. It's harmful to our individual. And when it comes to the poor, somebody who cannot defend themselves, our hearts, if we have the right intentions, people applaud the right intentions. But if we don't do the right thing, that's really what we have to strive for is doing the right thing. And if a poor man, if he comes in and he's getting sued, if you're judging somebody, and there were lots of people that were judges in Israel. You went to the elders of the clans of the the tribes that were there, and there would be a hierarchy going up to the eldest in that particular tribe. And you would go through these stages to get your case adjudicated. And if you had a buddy-buddy system going on, Uh, cronyism even back then you would sometimes side with the person who wasn't poor against the poor person you would go with the person who was rich or wealthy and God called that detestable that is something that is evil on the other hand if you pervert justice in another way where you side with the poor individual and you go against the rich one that is also perverting uh, perverting justice Uh, the Greek goddess Lady Justice Why do you think she holds out the scales and her eyes are covered 
Justice is supposed to be blind. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter your station. You are supposed to refer to the law of God or the teaching of God or the precepts of God to be able to adjudicate anything. Black's law was based upon that. They've been getting away from that, but that used to be the standard for judges and juries to adjudicate a case. And now it's getting away from that. It's whatever feels right, whatever goes for the minority is supposed to be the norm. And so we want to make sure that we don't pervert justice, that we stand for justice. We are also to stand against revenge. In verse 4, if you come across an enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, be sure to take it back to him. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you fallen down under its load... Do not leave it there. Be sure to help him with it. I, I tried to think of something that could uh, bring this back to us where we are. If you had a neighbor or somebody you knew that you didn't like, if you saw them in the store and you saw them way down the aisle, would you go the other way? Would you avoid them? Would you say, I'm going to go, yes, I heard that. Would you, would you go down this way? I'm not talking to that person. You know, and I experience the same feelings. Am I supposed to talk to that person? And I've just gotten over that. And what I do is I go right up to the person. And I stick, I stick out my hand and I shake their hand and hopefully whatever issues there are, they can be resolved. But this idea of taking revenge... Do you do, do you take revenge in a way that just doesn't do a person good or actually does them harm? I'm going to give you an example. At our house, uh, we have some neighbors around the neighborhood and they have feral cats. You know what that is, right? A cat that's outside all the time. And when the cat comes out, it decides right in our front, front of our window, that's its kitty litter box right in front of our window. And so what do I do when I see the cat? Oh, here, kitty, kitty, kitty. You know, do I do something like that? You know, what do I do? Do I, do I trap the cat and make it disappear? You know, and you see what I'm talking about here. Or what about somebody's dog that comes around to your house? I once had a, a problem where a neighbor's dog would come over and I found 23 little roses in my lawn. 23 and I you know I it just got apoplectic you know and I picked it up and and I kind of dealt with it but the person we didn't do that you're out of your mind no we saw no you're out of your mind no we saw and you see how you can start getting an attitude you just go well fine then since that dog comes out I'm spraying it with a hose you know or or whatever you want to do you want to take revenge on a neighbor now this is probably how it works out with us But God wants to make sure that we assist even those who are our enemies if they are in distress. We're not to hold that back. We're to be a blessing because we were enemies of God. And God came to us and he helped us. And he is our example. So that's what we're supposed to do. Don't harm the cats and dogs that are out there. It's not their fault. Go harm the neighbor. No, I'm kidding. Don't go harm the neighbor. And so you understand that we are not to take revenge in any way. Fifthly, stand against oppressors. Verse 6 says, do not deny justice to your poor people. And so we have just the opposite here. 
don't favor a poor person in court, and don't deny justice to a poor person in their lawsuits, having nothing to do with a false charge, and do not put an innocent or honest man to death, for I will not acquit the guilty. God holds those people accountable that would work against the poor especially. I've mentioned this uh, previously in the past couple of weeks. God is going to defend the poor, the orphans, and the widows. And we need to make sure that every opportunity we have to assist that we do because they are truly the ones in need. Even in our society, they would be the ones in need. And often the widows, they are the ones that are left alone. Maybe people don't visit them as much as they should. Uh, Take care of them, see what their needs are, talk with them, maybe even pray for them. If you know a widow, I would suggest doing so. Or the fatherless. You know, these little kids that are being raised without parents around. Uh, That's just a travesty for us in our society. Going on, verse 8. Do not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds those who see and twists the words of the righteous. In other words, we're to stand against corruption. That would be point number 6. We are not to receive a bribe. If somebody gives us something in exchange for a favor, we're not to do that. And not in the political realm that any money has been exchanged for any kind of favors, either future or current. We know that we're not... You see, even that, it's like you can't talk directly about that because somebody might be offended. You know, bribes are being made in our political system and we have to stand up and say, this is wrong. And yet there are people that say, let's vote that way. Are we asking for the demise of our society? You might be thinking to yourself right now, Pastor Bill's really opinionated. I I am not the one that's opinionated. It's God that's opinionated. I just want to be zealous for God. And whenever we see that corruption taking place, whenever we experience that firsthand, we just stand up and we say it's wrong. This is wrong. And, and we need to make sure that it is communicated, shouted from the rooftops, and that we are not sequestered, we are not put down because of that. And even if we are persecuted, if we stand up and we do right and we get that persecution, God says it's good that you stand up under unjust persecution. And we will be rewarded for such a stand. So this is God's decree. This is not my decree. Anything that I have to say, it means nothing. But this is what God says. In verse 9, it says, Do not oppress an alien. You yourselves know how it feels to be born aliens because you were aliens in Egypt. Now, you start asking questions and you start parsing what this has to say and you might come up with a conclusion, well, it doesn't talk about illegal aliens. It only talks about people from other countries. And the point here is we're to stand against discrimination. Now, I know when I come across the border in Mexico, usually in the midst of the lines there, there are what are known as Chiapas Indians. Chiapas Indians are the poorest of the poor, and they're looked down upon, especially in Tijuana. It may be even farther down that they are looked upon uh, in an adverse way. And they are usually the ones who sell little boxes of chiclets. And they just ask for a donation, and normally it's the mother who is out there, and she's holding a baby, and she has a bag of chiclets, little gums, that she tries to sell to get some money. But they are certainly discriminated against down in Mexico as you come across. And has there been discrimination in our country? Yes, 
on all sides. It used to be uh, black discrimination. Now it's turning into white discrimination, which is not really discrimination because there's no power to discriminate on that. So I, I, just, I just saw something about that yesterday. Discrimination in any form. I don't care if you're green and you're from Mars. We are not to discriminate in any way, in any fashion. Justice is blind. We treat everyone the same. Everyone is made in the image of God and worthy of respect just for that fact. And when we start making distinctions on race or color or creed, we just ought not to do it. Even our enemies, we are to bless them. And even those who would persecute us, we are to bless them. So God is clear, stand against all forms of discrimination. There is neither slave nor free, Scythian nor barbarian, woman or man. All are equal in the eyes of God. And we all will be judged justly. How we treat other people, we'll be rewarded if we do well, and we will lose reward if we do not do well. Verse 10. For six years you are to sow your field and harvest the crops. But during the seventh year, let the land lie unplowed and unused. Then the poor among your people may get food from it, and the wild animals may eat what they leave. Do the same with your vineyard and your olive grove. Now, as being involved in the agricultural industry, (laughs) I always look for things that will reduce the amount of work. And if you let something go for more than a couple of weeks, your work just piles up. Imagine letting something go for a year. How much work are you going to have at the end of that year? It is going to be daunting, especially if you have field upon field that is out there. The work is going to be hard. But God says this for the fact that we are to stand for the poor. You take a whole year out for no one but the poor. That's who it's for. And even the wild animals. God has concern over the animals which are out there as well, not mistreating the animals. But this idea that we would let them once every seven years have rain in our fields, it doesn't mean exclusively every seven years. Well, I suppose I can do it once every seven years. No, it's we're supposed to do it all the time, but in an agrarian society, you are to allow them just to go through your fields. And even during a regular year, they were allowed to go through your fields and eat whatever they could. They could not take anything and go and sell it somewhere, but they could take just enough for themselves. And in a regular year, the corners of the fields were not to be harvested, for those also were for the poor. And so no matter if it was a vineyard or an orchard or if it was some type of grain that was being grown, you were to give that. So we are to have a mind for the poor. So far we've seen three things on the poor here that do not give them more favor than is due, do not persecute them in a way that is unjust, and make sure you provide for them food. Because they are unable to protect themselves, those who are truly poor. Going on, the ninth one is stand for compassion. In other words, do not be a taskmaster in this particular context here. Six days, do your work, but on the seventh day... Do not work so that your ox and your donkey may rest and the slave born to your household and the alien as well may be refreshed. So there's a time to work, right? God spelled it out. Six days you shall work and do all your labor and on the seventh day you shall rest. And 
That is the status quo. Now, are there going to be times where you have to work more? Yeah, there are. Well, what if your rest comes on a Tuesday instead of on a Sabbath or on a Sunday? Well, that's all right. Well, what if you have to work 14 days straight? Well, it's okay. Just take the time to rest. And and some people store up their rest days. Uh, I get that. I do that on occasion. I'll store up my rest days, and, and it's okay. It would be better if I did it every seventh day, but you know how the pressures of this life work. But we are to maintain some type of rest, not only for ourselves, but those who may be employed by us. The tendency is, if, if we have God directing us, we have this drive to be productive. If we're not being productive, we feel like we're being lazy. If we sit down, unless we're on our phone, but then if we're on our phone or on a tablet or something or on the computer, we think we're being productive most of the time. We're doing something, but then it goes to a game or card or solitaire or whatever it might be, and we spend a lot of time doing that. But this idea is we have to produce something. That's why God gave us jobs that we might produce and then have some to share with others. And the more time we slack on that, the less we have to share with others and even for ourselves. But there must be this time of rest. And so we need to exemplify it to those who might be employed by us. And we need to teach it to our children and our neighbors and our friends that we need to take some time to rest. This is God's decree. Now, this is an expanded Sabbath law here. Six days are supposed to work, and on the seventh day rest. Six years you're to work, and on the seventh year you're to let the land rest. And seven sets of seven is is the year of Jubilee, and that's where all the land that has been sold is to be returned to the individual who sold it because they ran into some financial trouble, and that's permissible. So God's into this rest. He wants us to rest. Number 10, stand for devotion and loyalty to God. Verse 13 says, Be careful to do everything I have said to you. Do not invoke the name of other gods. Do not let them be heard on your lips. For them, it would be, As Zeus is my witness. (laughs) Don't be doing that. Zeus is nobody. He is a made-up caricature. They've made statues to him, but he doesn't exist. Dagon, it's a body of a person with the head of a, a fish, And they carved him up. Maybe you remember that with the Philistines and how the Ark of the Covenant was moved into the Temple of Dagon. They thought they'd put Dagon right here and they put the Ark of the Covenant right there. And then when they came in, the statue of Dagon over the night had fallen down on its face. And they said, oh, we need to pick this back up. This is our God, Dagon, the fish God. Well, they did that. And then the second night, its hands were broken off. It's like, get a clue. Get that false god out of here. So we're not to have those false gods. We're to stand for loyalty to God. He says, be careful to do everything I have said to you. Now, would he say that to us in the New Testament? Yes, he would. Be careful to do everything that I have told you. Love your enemies. Consider others better than yourselves. Make sure you're attending fellowship. Do not forsake the gathering together of the brethren. Pray continually. All of these things he says in the New Testament, he expects us to do. And if we slack on that, you know, and we're going to be slackers. We are slackers by nature. I I get that. I like to slack. Slacking's fun. You just get to lay down and relax and do nothing. But God says don't slack when it comes to the things concerning him. He is supposed to be number one. So we are supposed to stand for devotion and loyalty to God. Number 11, we are to stand for tradition. 
Verse 14, three times a year you are to celebrate a festival to me. Now, there were three feasts in Israel that were the major feasts that are talked about here. Celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread, verse 15, for seven days. Eat bread made without yeast, as I commanded you. Do this at the appointed time in the month of Abib, for in that month you came out of Egypt. No one is to appear before me empty-handed. Verse 16, celebrate the Feast of Harvest with first fruits of the crops you sow in your field. Celebrate the Feast of Ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in your crops from the field three times a year. All the men are to appear before the sovereign Lord. Now, at Passover, Passover and unleavened bread, we talked about this uh, last Wednesday. Unleavened bread starts and then Passover follows and you have these groupings of feasts that take place. But these particular feasts were to be observed by the Jews. And there were seven feasts total that were to be followed but there are the three major ones. It is redemption, of, uh, Feast of Redemption, which is the unleavened bread and Passover. Then there's Pentecost and also Tabernacles. And I told you on Wednesday that Tabernacles is coming up in October. Uh, the whole month of October deals with certain festivals. And so the Jews have their lives, have their calendars surrounded by God. Now, I started to look at this and I said to myself, what is our society geared around? What do we do in our society that we look forward to a particular day, a particular celebration? What's our next celebration that's coming up? Labor Day. It's Labor Day, right? Who do we celebrate on Labor Day? Yeah, we get to slack off. We like slacking, right? We celebrate the laborers. How do we celebrate the laborers? By not laboring. It's kind of ironic that we would do that, but we don't labor on Labor Day because we celebrate those who labor. And then there's, what's the beginning of summer? Memorial Day. We remember the vets, which we should. We should remember those vets and honor them. But that seems to be a diminishing holiday. We just take it. We don't know why. Uh, it's like 4th of July. You know, these man on the street interviews, they had no idea what the 4th of July was about. Somebody went out there with a microphone and said, isn't it great that uh, Nazi Germany was liberated on the 4th of July? And people go, oh, yeah, that was totally cool. That, that's not what happened at all. They don't know their history whatsoever. But what do we celebrate on the 4th of July? Our independence. It's our independence. It's our veterans. It's our laborers. What about December 25th? What is that? Is it Christ's birth or is it winter solstice or is it winter break? In our society as a whole, we are getting away from Christ and what he has done and it's turning into, remember uh, uh, Christmas on the Prado? What's it called now? December lights. Yeah, it's called December because it might offend somebody. The Christmas parade in La Jolla, they want to take the name out of the Christmas parade one or two people are offended and so we just want to call it a winter parade or something like that you know and so we have that what about Easter what is Easter all about in this country hard boiled eggs right peeps it's about peeps 
And we're not talking about people and it's baskets and it's bunnies and eggs and try to explain that to your kid. Don't even try. They're not going to understand it. It's this idea of fertility and it really doesn't have anything to do, at least outside of the Christian community, it doesn't have anything to do with the resurrection of Christ. Now, for instance, Christmas this year, if I'm not mistaken, Christmas is... What is it? Is it a Saturday or Sunday? Is it a Sunday? It's on Sunday this year, right? Christmas is on Sunday. So what are you going to do? I like that answer. That answer is good. Yeah, we're going to church. But you know, devout Christians are going to say, you know what? Let's, let's just spend it at home on Christmas. If we do that, what are we communicating to our families what we think about Christ on Christmas. Now, I know he wasn't born on Christmas. And I'm not telling you this so you can pack your bags and take a guilt trip. I'm not doing that. I'm just trying to point out the obvious. You know, if we're going to be a witness for Christ, and we've had this a few times since the church has started, Christmas on Sunday. And will people come? And it's a great time to bring the entire family Load them up in advance and say, we're going to church and that's just the, well, be nice about it. We're going to church and we're going to celebrate Christ's birth. And so as a country, the celebrations we have, we have them on the calendar, right? But there's a whole bunch of celebrations that aren't even on the calendar. They're called sports. How big is NASCAR? Don't talk about NASCAR in a bad light. I know. There's NASCAR. It's bigger than NFL football. Do you know that? You know what else is bigger than NFL football? Bowling. Yeah, I heard that the other day. I go, no way. Bowling is bigger than NFL. Yes, it's just you don't, you know, the bowling alleys don't have huge stadiums watching people bowl. But the country as a whole is into bowling. You would never know it, but we are. And then there's baseball. Isn't there a game today too? It's Chargers? Chargers today. And so, you know, all of these things, it's what our society is geared around and conventions and things like that. We want to make sure that we are honoring the Lord. Now, he says back in here, as you're honoring the Lord, as you're standing for tradition and these Jews were to stand for the feast, there's one thing that they were to do in the feasts. It says there in verse 15, the second half, no one is to appear before me empty-handed. So what does that mean exactly? What that means is whenever you appear before the Lord, you are to bring cash. Now, I have to preface this with something. In my Christian walk, I have been offended over and over by the appeal for cash. So much so we don't receive an offering. That's why we have the agape box. It's between you and God. When I've gone to churches or events and they've received multiple offerings, I want to stand up and just scream. And I want to say how wrong this is. And I've heard churches do it three times. And I know that there are churches that take the whole month of January and talk about stewardship month. You only need to be told as often as it comes up in Scripture and told in a way that is instructive, not told in a way that beats you over the head because it's between you and God. And if you got some guilt over that, let it come from God. 
Don't let it come from the pastor. Don't let it come from the people in the church. Let it come from God. If you're doing well, let your praise come from God. Let God be the one who pats you on the back and says it's okay. So at these feasts, these people were to bring cash and they were to give it or of their goods. The first fruits of their harvest they were to give, they were to provide. Paul reiterates this when he writes this idea on the first day of every week, set aside a sum in keeping with your income and bring it so that when he showed up for the churches in Galatia to receive some money from the churches that he was traveling through, that he could take that money without having to receive an offering. And what he meant by that was he didn't have to make a plea for it. Something like this. Well, you know, folks, I'm heading out to uh, Galatia and visiting the churches up there, and we could really use your support as we go up there, and it would be nice if you could take out your checkbooks right now and by faith just write something down and make it something that was going to hurt a little bit because we know we don't want to give without it hurting because God sacrificed for us, and it's our time to sacrifice now. And you get the spiel. That's how a lot of pastors do it. And it's seed faith money and store up for yourselves treasures in heaven and forget about this earth. And that's the appeal that they make. The idea that's communicated here is whenever you show up to an event, bring cash. You give according to your income. That's what God says. Now, I have to go back to the predicate. I'm offended by that. My flesh, I, I just get all, just let me do it myself. You don't have to tell me. I already know. But God has it here. Why? Because people needed to be reminded. Because the tendency is not to be faithful in that particular area. So we have these feasts that they were supposed to show up for. The Passover. They were, there was also Pentecost and the idea of tabernacles and the Feast of Unleavened Bread was part of Passover. It was celebrated at that time. And all the men would go to Jerusalem. And it would swell to hundreds of thousands of people. Depending on who would go to Jerusalem, it could end up being a million people would be there. And they would sleep anywhere that they could. Now going on, we have further ceremonial regulations here in the next five minutes. Do not offer the blood of sacrifices to me along with anything containing yeast. The fat of my festival offerings must be kept until morning. Bring the best of the first fruits of your soil to the house of the Lord your God and do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. What is with that? <clears throat> well, first, the yeast. Nothing containing yeast. When they came out of Israel, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they were supposed to bake their bread without yeast because they didn't have enough time to let the dough rise. And yeast is always, almost always representative of evil in Scripture. There's no yeast in Christ, no leaven. Get rid of the leaven uh, that is in any church or that was in the synagogue because that leaven spreads through the whole church and evil will start to reign over everybody's life. And so that's what the yeast represents. And the fat of my festival offerings must not be kept until morning. When the Passover lamb was prepared, they were supposed to eat, consume the whole thing. And if they didn't, they were to burn the rest of it. And so God said, just keep the feast. Do what he asks you to do. Consume all of the sacrificial lamb. In other words, for us, consume all of Christ. The bread, the cup, the obedience, the devotion, all of those things. Then bring the best of the first fruits of your soil to the house of the Lord your God. Give. You know, it's like I said, give cash. And do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. What is with that is the pagans 
often would have pagan rituals where they would do things like this. And it just talks about being or acting in a way that is cruel or barbaric like the pagans. So what he's telling you here is be devoted to Christ. Do everything he asks you to do and do not be like the pagans. I mean, if you just want to boil it down, that's what it boils down to. Even today, and I think that the Jews today have taken this a little bit out of context, you cannot go to Israel today in any major supermarket, restaurant chain, and buy a cheeseburger. You can't do it. You can buy a hamburger, but you cannot have cheese on it because they think somehow you might get some mother's milk in with some veal. And if you mix those two by happenstance, because that milk goes into the cheese, the cheese goes on the hamburger, it's the same thing as cooking a little baby cow in its mother's milk. I think they stretch that quite a bit. It's just like today. I think that they stretch this idea of do not drink blood, do not get a blood transfusion. And to me, that's just absurdity. That's not what Christ was talking about. And so verse 20 says, See, I am sending an angel ahead of you to guard you along the way and to bring you to a place I have prepared. Pay attention to him and listen to what he says. Do not rebel against him. He will not forgive your rebellion since my name is in him. Now, you have a hint here on who this is. Yeah, it's Jesus Christ. And in fact, he appeared. Now, I believe it was Jesus who showed up in the burning bush to Moses. It was he who showed up and talked to Moses as a man talks face to face. And when he saw him at the burning bush, what did he tell Moses? Take off your sandals for the place that you are standing is holy unto the Lord. This is out of Joshua chapter 5. It says in verse 15, The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. This angel actually showed up. Now, angel can be another word for messenger. I believe this is the Son of God. It's called a Christophany that takes place in the Old Testament. The reference in Exodus where Moses did this was Exodus chapter 3, verse 5. Going on in verse 22. If you listen carefully to what he says and do all that I say, I will be an enemy to your enemies and will oppose those who oppose you. My angel will go ahead of you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I will wipe them out. Do not bow down before their gods or worship them or follow their practices. You must demolish them and break their sacred stones in pieces. Worship the Lord your God and his blessings will be your food and water. I will take away sickness from among you and none will miscarry or be barren in your land. I will give you a full life span. Verse 27 says, I will send my terror ahead of you. I will throw, excuse me, and throw into confusion every nation you encounter. I will make all your enemies turn their backs and run. I will send the hornet ahead of you and drive the Hittites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, out of your way but I will not drive them out in a single year because the land would become desolate and wild animals too numerous for you little by little I will drive them out before you until you have increased enough to take possession of the land I will establish your borders from the Red Sea of the Philistines and from the desert to the river the river would be Euphrates over by Iraq I will hand over to you the people who live in the land and you will drive them out before you. Do not make a covenant with them or with their gods and do not let them live in your land. 
or they will cause you to sin against me because the worship of their gods will certainly be a snare to you. The thing I want you to recognize in these verses from 22 to the end, it's everything God says he will do. I will be an enemy to your enemies. I will wipe them out. I will give you a full lifespan. I will take away sickness from among you. I will send my terror ahead of you. I will send the hornet ahead of you. I will drive them out. I will establish. I will hand over to you the people. Who's doing it? God is doing it. As we go through our lives, who's doing it? God is doing it. God was preparing the way. God was protecting along the way. God was punishing the enemies before them. God purged the evil out before them. God was performing it all. It's all contingent on one thing. These promises would all be fulfilled if they did one thing. Worship God. That's it. There's so many blessings available to us if we just follow God. But our flesh is weak and we don't want to. That's my encouragement to you this morning. Follow God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Give yourself diligently to the Lord. Be conformed to his image. Be devout. When you want to just say, no, I don't want to, do it. Blessings are waiting for you. If you look at church like, I got to go there again. There's people there. You know, yeah, there's people there. There's a bunch of sinners in that place. Yeah, a bunch of confessed sinners in that place. And I might have conflict. Yeah, you might have conflict. How fun. The Lord is just going to bring us all along and he's perfecting us by everyone else around us. That's how it works. And there's so much blessing. For the Israelites, it was tough. It was hard. But you know what? They're God's chosen people. Take away that moniker. There's no way. They're God's people. And so are you. May God bless you in your pursuits to follow him with everything that is within you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and the example of the Israelites. Thank you for spelling out for us the right and the wrong of life and those things in society which are good and holy and upright. Help us to cling to them and help us to divest ourselves of our own opinions and our own desires. Help us to cling to yours. With your help, we'll do so. In Jesus' name, everyone said.